Archdiocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and thank you for listening to this 13th episode of Prairie Rome Companion. In this episode, we'll conclude our interview with Carl Olson on the issue of atheism, uh, pop atheism in particular. In, in American culture. Stay tuned for the concluding part of our interview with Carl Olson. And we're continuing our discussion with Carl Olson about atheism and various forms of atheism in our culture today. Carl, when we left off in the last episode, we were talking, you were talking about how uh, you know, a lot of atheists don't seem really to follow the logical conclusion of their atheism through. Um, and you give an example of a, a, a co-worker from your past and the whole discussion of, of her love for her for her, her husband and her children, how it doesn't really correspond with her intellectual assertion of atheism. And as I mentioned, it reminds me of what Nietzsche said, and as wrong as Nietzsche was, at least he was... Uh, frankly consistent in that he said you know, if if god is dead then these certain conclusions do follow from that that basic premise or that initial uh conclusion and among them for instance uh the whole idea of morality uh you know sort of collapses uh by and large if if without god exactly it's a, it's a fascinating point and i had mentioned in the last our last conversation um this uh, Kevin, who was a head of the local Freethinkers and Atheist Society, and he had this remarkable comment he made in one of his letters to me, because uh, we're talking about meaning, because I, I brought up the same point, and what is, how do you find meaning if, if all of this is just kind of a big biological accident, that, that Darwinian evolution, uh, free of any kind of theistic uh, moorings, is, is true? And he said, and I quote, Atheists simply assert that in order to create meaning, you must have a functioning mind. We all create our own meaning, and hence our own version of morality. Whether you want to believe it or not, there is no one right way, no fundamental rule which applies in all circumstances. Now, again, this is funny because I, I ended up learning um, that that this gentleman, Kevin, again, married... Um, there was a newspaper article about him in relation to him founding this uh, Freethinkers and Atheist Society, and he talks about his, how much he loves his family, loves his wife. And, again, my thought when I read that was, well, it doesn't totally make sense. Now, I'm sure Kevin would say, hey, I'm creating my own meaning, which is that I love my wife. But, but think about it. If you're married to somebody and they're saying, well, I've created my meaning, which is that I, is that I love you. Well, <laughs> when you decide to create a new meaning, what happens? Um, if there's no actual objective basis for one's love, for one's moral values, then Nietzsche is correct. Um, all things are permissible. And, of course, this is why Nietzsche had to, had to create kind of this will to power, this idea that you do create. I mean, this is really what Kevin is saying is kind of a form of, of what Nietzsche would say, but in a more kind of um, sedate manner. It, it, it goes down very easy. Obviously, it's, it's very attractive on one level because it frees us from objective morality. It frees us to do the things that we desire to do without worrying about any kind of um, judgment, uh, either in this life uh, or the next. And I think that is one of the great um, attractions of, of such a view. But it obviously holds a lot of dangers because then you have to question what is a, a society based upon? Right. Um, are we just living in kind of a a kind of a loose social contract or agreement where we just 
we'll just all get along so we can all pursue our own desires as long as we don't trample on other people's rights. Then those rights become based on what the state has to say. And really, if you look through human history, especially the last couple hundred years, that ultimately comes down to a state that begins to assert itself to the point where it can easily become totalitarian exactly. uh, in nature. Right. And, you know, those are things that I think just a lot of people don't, don't think of. And I think it's because we live, it's like we live in a cocoon that is Judeo-Christian. And so we live in the warmth of this. We live in the, the comfort of it, so to speak, both physically and intellectually and so forth. And we, people will spout these things, kind of this pop atheism we were talking about, but then they shy away from taking it to the edge, to the end, like Nietzsche did. Um, some people uh, are willing to do it, and, uh, you know, in a sense, you have to give them credit. Right. The problem is that those people, when they do it, um, are willing to do things that are sometimes horrific, uh, right. that are really horrible. Yeah. And so... I think that's one of the one of the big problems of um, kind of a pop atheism or any form of atheism is really ultimately what is meaning uh, based in. Right, exactly. And I think uh, you know you mentioned the cocoon. Uh, another way it's been put is that uh, we're living off of Judeo-Christian capital, which was built up by Western society and civilization for the last two millennia, but we're depleting that capital. And what happens exactly. when we run through it all? Exactly. And I think. You know, it's it's easy to, you know, say, well, it's it's going to happen in the next few years. There's a sense in which it already has happened. I mean, if you look at, and this is, again, going back to the Soviet Union and what happened under communism, not just in the Soviet Union, but places like, like China and, and uh, Cuba and other places, people like Lenin, like Stalin, uh, yes, they were monsters, but I would say that their their monstrosity, so to speak, was facilitated by a willingness to take this uh, to its ultimate end, mm-hmm. to follow through with an atheism, and to say, hey, I really do believe that I can do whatever I want, and I don't have to care about the dignity of others, because, you know, I, I have asserted, you know, my will to power. I think, you know, Lenin and Stalin especially, I think, are people who followed uh, Nietzsche's philosophy in a very concrete way, leading to the deaths of, of millions, of tens of millions of people. Um, you know, I want to be careful here. I don't want to say that all atheists are out to just kill people. You know, because sometimes that's what atheists will bring up. Oh, so you're saying that all atheists are horrible people, as though atheists can't live moral lives. No, not at all. I think an atheist can live a very moral life. I just don't think that they can do it uh, and be completely um, 100% committed to their supposed intellectual perspective. But I the, just don't think it makes sense. There's going to be some dissonance there between the lives they live and the intellectual assertions they Absolutely. have. Absolutely. Right. And, and you, I mean, you're talking about dignity and rights, and those are obviously things that we hold dear, uh, especially in the West, but, but, but we hold them as if they're objective truths, uh, if that is a meaning in reality. So if there is no meaning, then that means that somebody else doesn't have dignity and therefore they don't have rights, and therefore I can do what I want. And again, as you mentioned, it's not necessarily that... You'll, that, that you know, who knows? I would doubt the majority of atheists would even say like, things like that, especially in the West. But that's what the logical conclusion of their intellectual assertion about the existence of God leads them to. Exactly. And I think it's a distinction you know, we have to make um, between where these belief systems ultimately 
lead if they're taken to their logical conclusion and the way that I think the vast majority of people who are atheists or skeptics actually believe. I think the vast majority of people who would say that they're atheists live probably uh, decent lives. Um, but again, I, don't, I think it's at the, ex, at the expense, as you say, of the Judeo-Christian heritage, which so many of them openly despise. You know, that's the, that's the irony of the whole thing. Uh, it's like somebody living off their family's wealth and yet doing nothing but bad-mouthing their parents the whole time. Right. Um, it, it's just bad form, uh, and ultimately it's worse than bad form. It leads to a complete... Um, corruption, really, of the soul, uh, not just an intellectual corruption, but even worse, is a spiritual corruption. And I think that ultimately is the danger of any kind of uh, even a pop atheism, is that it opens the door for people to go into various lifestyles or to practice certain things that, that could destroy them spiritually. And that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Right, exactly. And, I, you know, the, with the whole idea of the, the capital, again, just an example that I often uh, think of, the idea of the person as this bearer, again, of inherent dignity and rights and responsibilities, which we often don't hear as much about as the rights. Uh, but the idea of the person um, is is I mean, almost completely... Uh, Christian in origin, at least philosophically, going back to the you know, third, fourth, fifth century d- debates about the Trinity and and Jesus and his two natures, one person, and so on. Most people, um, atheists, believers alike, I don't think realize uh, that the idea of the person is is profoundly Christian in origin. Right, and what, what happens sometimes? Like I had this recent, um, I think I think you're aware of it. This uh, online conversation with A.C. Grayling, who's a professor of philosophy, University of London, who was really enamored with not just the Enlightenment, but going back to the Greco-Roman world, uh, and had nothing but nasty things to say about the Dark Ages, you know, the 1,000 years of complete darkness where Christianity tried to stamp out any kind of uh, real life, any kind of intellectual exercise. And I think what he's done is he's had to create a different uh, font to to uh, bring uh, from which to draw his inspiration for being a human, and so he's created kind of this mythology of this almost golden Greco-Roman era, um, and it's really a it's not accurate to the way things really were, and he also misses uh, how that Greco-Roman heritage has come down to us through a Christian um, paradigm, through Christian philosophy. Uh, you know, obviously we think of Aquinas, but many others as well, and how it's uh, the, the really great insights that Aristotle and Socrates and others had has been delivered to us in a, f- a full form, a fully developed form um, by Christianity, that Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and so forth had brilliant insights. Mm-hmm. In fact, considering that they were lived before Christ, some of the, their insights and thinking was just completely remarkable, mm-hmm. and yet it had to be brought to fruition um, I think through the Judeo-Christian heritage. Otherwise, it's still going to be lacking. Right. Um, so, well, you know, what happens is uh, with, with atheism, ultimately, what's taken to this extreme is that man has to ultimately worship himself or worship the state. I mean, man is made, as Augustine points out so well in his Confessions, man is made to worship. He, he, he is made for something other. Mm-hmm. That other is God, obviously, but if we say there is no God or we reject God, we have to put something in his place. Um, and, it's, you know, the Catechism 
sums this up very, very nicely in paragraph uh, 2124, this great quote, very simple, where it says, Atheistic humanism falsely considers man to be an end to himself and the soul maker with supreme control of his own history. It's probably one of the best one-sentence descriptions of the problem uh, right there, that Mm -hmm. people think that I am the end for myself, and we see that, obviously, in many different ways in how people live. Um, I'm going to get a divorce because I'm bored with you. I'm going to take advantage of you in business dealings because I just want to make money for myself. And then we see it in bigger ways with, you know, with, with genocide, with other, other activities. Um, because, after all, if we are the end, then, and that's it, what does it matter? There's, there's no accounting. It's all about power. Um, and there's, there's a complete lack of regard for the, the kind of morality and tra- uh, transcendent truths that do exist. And you know, one th- another thing that you had mentioned that uh, struck me, uh, at the beginning of the interview in the last episode, you talked about how there's this practical atheism as well. And we were just talking about how there's, you know, oftentimes among actual atheists, they have the, the, their atheistic assertions, but then their life is lived out differently. And we see, to some degree, um, the inverse of that among many uh, Christians and Catholics, where they, they hold these intellectual assertions that God does exist and Jesus did, does exist and so on, uh, and yet their lives aren't in complete concordance with their intellectual belief either. And uh, You talked about practical atheism in that context. Yeah, and w- what happens is there's kind of an ir- ironic uh, juxtaposition here in that there's a hypocrisy, if you will, on, on both sides, and that is the atheist oftentimes, especially the kind of pop atheist or the person who's indulging in what we call practical atheism, doesn't follow through with what he says he believes, and many Christians don't obviously follow through with what they say they believe. Um, but I think this is actually an argument for the Christian view of man, which is that he is a fallen creature uh, who, who should know that there is something more to reality than what he can see, um, and yet he is going to fail. Um, the atheist, in a sense, doesn't have to fail, because his belief system, I guess, would say that there is no real failure. Uh, because if you just create your own meaning, then you can just rewrite, uh, quote-unquote, what we, we as Christians would see as a failure to live up to the logical conclusions. And yet atheists will turn around and, and accuse Christians of hypocrisy, of not living up to what they say. Obviously, many Christians do that. All of us, to differing degrees, fail to live the Christian life as fully as we should, uh, in big ways and small ways, in, in very public ways or more private ways. Um, and so there, but I think maybe you're talking about those people who, it, it, take it to another extreme, those Christians who spend the hour at Mass every Sunday, but then really don't seem to even care about applying it right. to their life. Then we're talking about something that's even more disturbing, more scandalous, um, you know, as G.K. Chesterton wrote somewhere, that the greatest scandal of the Catholic Church are Catholics. Uh, and I think by that he meant people who will sometimes give lip service or go to Mass and yet live lives that are so clearly and obviously contrary to what anybody would, would think a Christian should live. And, and, you know, being raised in a fundamentalist household, we, we use this all the time. Well, we see our Catholic friends partying and drinking and swearing and smoking. And right. oh, they just are, they're always enjoying themselves. You know, Christians shouldn't be enjoying themselves. <laughs> uh, 
and, and, and yeah, we did, we did know Catholics who really had problems with some of these things. But looking back, I could also see that those were people who, it was a cultural Catholicism, who did not really live it out. Um, and I, I think the response there to an atheist, I think one of the responses is, let's look at the people who live out the atheistic lifestyle, so to speak, intellectually live it out to its conclusion, and let's look at Christians who live it out to its ultimate. So let's compare people like John Paul II, Mother Teresa, the great saints, compare those to atheists who have lived out their belief systems before. And I think there then you begin to see the really striking contrast. Right. Because, again, no one denies that atheists can live good moral lives. But if you look at atheists like uh, a Nietzsche or a Stalin or a Lenin, a Lenin, ultimately atheists who really do say, I'm going to live this 100% and I don't really care what happens because uh, I don't have to, things really tend to go badly. Um, I don't see a lot of hospitals, a lot of orphanages, a lot of charitable institutions that have been found by atheists. Right. Um, certainly when you look at things like the way the United Nations is set up or, or uh, you know, different foundations. I guess you could say there's some of that. But ultimately, all of those various charitable, thi- charitable things, as you say, come from a Judeo-Christian view of man. And, and so I, I think that contrast is what, even if taken kind of to an extreme, sometimes is what's needed to, to get people to see that. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, one thing we've talked uh, in a number of ways about um, is, is pop atheism, some pop atheists in particular. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the, the pop atheists uh, whose work you're familiar with, uh, either directly or by review and so on, uh, and, and explain a little bit more about some of their perspectives? Well, I mentioned Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, and those are the two that I've... Um I probably know the most about. I've actually I read Sam Harris's uh, first book, and whose t- the title of which completely escapes me at the moment, um, and I'm not finding it on my bookshelf. Um, the End of Faith. The End of Faith is the, the name of his first book. Richard Dawkins. I've actually read interviews with him and a, and a couple of online debates that he's had. I've not read his book, The God Delusion, which is a big bestseller. Both men, um, as I said, have complete disdain. For Christianity and and also for for Islam, and I think in both cases because they they equate both with a kind of violent, nasty, superstitious, ill-tempered um, belief system. Sam Harris, I thought it was very fascinating uh, because he does, does a couple of things in his his book, The End of Faith, that I think uh, aren't very logical. Uh, one of those is that in talking about communism, the Soviet Union, and Lenin and Stalin, is he he writes them off, he gets around that by saying, well, that's actually a form of religion, that type of uh, communism or Marxism, that's a form of religion, and, that's, and that just shows us what happens when people become religious. In other words, he tries to actually make Stalin and Lenin become religious leaders mm-hmm. so that he can point to the millions they've killed as being an, um, a type of religious activity, mm-hmm. which I think is intellectually... Uh, perverse. Um, it's not being very, very uh, accurate at all about what those men believed and why they did what they did. The interesting thing, though, just briefly, though, um, I think of uh, you know the the Humanist Manifesto. Basically, a bunch of atheists in the early twentieth century got together. Right. Let's let's try to uh, 
provide a systemic or systematic explanation of our understanding of, of humanity and reality and so on. Um, Dewey, uh, John Dewey, was one of the the, exactly. the, the major. And in that, the, the, and then and later in the seventies, there was the the second uh, humanist manifesto was written. But the first one described itself as a religious as, as a religion. Yeah, uh, which is you know I mean. To say, and, 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 and it, from one perspective, as you said, it's it's perverse trying to make uh, Hitler and so on as if they're religious leaders. But at the same time, the truth I think in that is that everybody does have a re- even an atheist has a religion, right? Exactly. Uh, which is right. you know which which we see explicitly in in the the first uh, secularist manifesto of the twentieth century. Yeah, and I think you you, know, you're, you make an excellent point because really. When a Sam Harris or a Richard Dawkins or others say that religion is the problem, they're completely, they're, they're really fudging because, as you say, all of us are religious creatures. We're, we are beings who, who need a, a, a cult, using that in the proper sense of the word, right. a, a religious underpinning. Atheists strive for that, and some of them even find it in, in uh, how they, they live their lives. Um, you know, Raymond Aron is a great French socialist, political theorist, uh, wrote a book, The Opium of the Intellectuals, and some other books, where he goes into great detail about how communism and Nazism both were, were religious undertakings. Mm-hmm. That communism basically replaced the different feast days, the Christian feast days and stuff, with, uh, you know, these communist um, days of, of celebration where they march the troops and they do this and they do that. As a way of trying to, and they'd have uh, people would have to have pictures of Stalin on the wall, re- replacing uh, you know icons of Christ or Mary or whatever, uh, because those communist leaders recognized that, at least at some level that people do need kind of this the, the cult, the the religious element, the the communal reality that comes with with uh, that that's part of the human nature, and people weren't finding it with. Uh, just the economic realities of a communist state uh, didn't right. do it for them. So right. they had to actually kind of create these festivities and so forth. Um, so it's very, very true. Mm-hmm. So the problem isn't, in a sense, the problem is not religion at all. Um, obviously, it's, for, for Harris and for Dawkins, it's Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's their right. thing. I mean, they're, they're, in a sense, they're being disingenuous when they try to lump Christians together. And, for example, this is the second part with, with Harris, he happens to think that Buddhism is wonderful. He loves Buddhism um, and talks about how it's this great metaphysic and, and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, wait a second. Um, <laughs> if you say you're an atheist and you claim that, uh, that the physical material realm is all there is, where do you get off by all of a sudden talking about how wonderful a certain metaphysical approach is? Right. Um, because, you know, metaphysical is beyond right. physical. So... Harris actually allows for there being some kind of transcendent reality. That's what's remarkable. Hmm. He allows for it, but then he insists that it has nothing to do with a Christian view. And, of course, his portrayal of Christianity is so warped and so such a rotten um, perspective of uh, He just completely ignores anything. You know, it's a, a typical story. He ignores anything positive done by Christians, and also ignores everything horrible done uh, by those who really lived out an atheistic mindset. Right. Well, that's going to lead you to a very skewed perspective, obviously. As Christians, we're not interested in going around saying everything Christians do is wonderful. We're trying to look at where does a Christian 
theology and worldview ultimately lead? What does it logically lead to? Does it lead to the killings of millions of people, or does it lead to increased understanding of the dignity of the human person, uh, more rights for women and children, uh, better working conditions? I mean, these are things that historically have happened because of the Judeo-Christian heritage. Right. Um, you don't see that in regimes that were attempted to be atheistic in their uh, principles. Yeah, it's it's interesting how you, you see that, uh, uh, well, intellectual dishonesty, frankly. It is. And, I, and um, you know, we, we've talked about this already a couple times, but I think the one thing that continually comes back, you see this online a lot, is, oh, so Christians say that atheists can't live good moral lives. And so, you know, I just reiterate, again, we have to make a distinction there. You know, why does a person live a moral life? Like, you know, that in talking to my coworkers, I mentioned... Why does she remain faithful to her family, love her husband and, and, and kids? Why does she do that, really? You know, because really all the answers that she's going to give, I think, are going to point beyond uh, a reality that atheism can make sense of. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the whole point there. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that she loves her family. I'm just saying it doesn't make sense. Um, and so you know, this is, again, where the, kind of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love are very interesting, because they are so specifically Christian. We, as a culture, in many ways, kind of embrace them, and yet we want to completely um, ignore where they come from right. and what they're based upon. Right, exactly. Uh, it would be remiss of us, Carl, if, if we didn't at some point here in this interview talk about uh, how to respond to atheism in its various forms. So I'm just wondering if the time remaining, if you could sort of go through maybe a, a brief apologetic uh, in defense of of Christian or, or, or more specifically Catholic um, theism, although I'm not sure how much of a distinction there is there. Uh, but but you know, responding to um, the the various atheistic arguments, what's what's the approach that you uh, would would typically take? Well, I have some general ideas, and they're based in, in large part upon what is stated in Gaudium et Spes, um, document from Second Vatican Council, which talks about atheism. In fact, it says that atheism is one of the most pressing issues of our time. You know, one of the things that struck me when I became Catholic is when I looked at the apologetic literature that was around, I saw very little addressing atheism. Um, there's a lot of stuff address, addressing fundamentalism and Mormonism and, and Jehovah Witnesses and so forth, which is all necessary, obviously. Um, but I, I think it's only in the last few years, um, and it's certainly not because of me, but in the last few years we've seen a, a return to addressing uh, atheism on, on a more popular level, which I think is very important. And so I would highly recommend people reading Gaudium et Spes, reading works especially, I think, of Peter Kraft, who has written... Um, a lot of good books addressing this. But in Gaudium et Spes, it, it says that the remedy to be applied to atheism, one of them is to present the Church's teaching and live it out uh, properly. And we've, we've touched on this already, but I don't think we can ever underestimate the, the strength and value of an authentically lived Christian life. Um, because so many people kind of hold on to this pop atheism because they're, they can't embrace something they, they see as hypocritical. Now, we can't, I mean, obviously, if somebody wants to believe that, regardless of the good example being shown them, we can't force them to believe in the Catholic Church. But we can remove impediments, at least, mm-hmm. by, by properly presenting what the Catholic Church really does teach. 
about things, that God is not this horrible monster who wants to punish people, but is a loving Father who allows people, because of their free will, the greatest, one of the greatest gifts he's given us, to ch- choose to reject him. And so that's why hell exists, not because God wants to punish people. So things like explaining properly what hell is in the, in the broader context of, Christ- of Catholic theology, I think that's very important for Catholics to be able to do, to live out their lives, obviously, in a way that witnesses to the truth. And then for people to be kind of familiar with some of the basic arguments for the existence of God, Again, keeping in mind, as Mark Brumley points out in his, his book that you mentioned, uh, How Not to Share Your Faith, that there's a sense in which we cannot prove the existence of God. We can provide proofs that point to the existence of a, of a creator, of a designer. But when it comes to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that does require an acceptance of divine revelation. But that the, to be familiar with the, the proofs of Thomas Aquinas, um, which you know Peter Crave goes through very well in his handbook of, of Christian apologetics, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend. Um, I think C.S. Lewis still is, is one of the best in regards to some of these things in mere Christianity, the problem of pain. And C.S. Lewis also brings up the moral argument, which we've kind of touched on um, in different ways. And, and why do we people act in a, in a moral manner? Um, why do we say that, that murdering someone who's innocent uh, murdering is wrong, that, that abusing children is wrong, that rape is wrong, that stealing is wrong. Why do cultures across the board tend to see those things the same way? Why is that? I think that's a very powerful argument because it speaks to the common human nature and condition and reality um, that an atheistic worldview um, really asserts is not there. Because atheists will say, well, we're just products of our environment. Well, if that's the case, why do people of such diverse backgrounds have this common moral core that they mm-hmm. act out of? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really great argument brought forth by C.S. Lewis in a popular form. Um, you know, Pascal's, the, the final one I'll mention is Pascal's Wager, which gets a lot of bad press. <laughs> but I, I think it's still a very intriguing argument. And actually, it was reintroduced so to speak, recently by Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, shortly before being elected Pope, in his book, Christianity and the Crisis of Cultures, he kind of uses a variation of the wager when he says in there, he challenges non-believers to live as though there is a God. And I'd really recommend people to read uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's book, Christianity and the Crisis of Cultures, because it's actually a very devastating critique of kind of Enlightenment-era atheism and how it's come down to our own day and what it has led to in terms of abortion, of euthanasia, of living as though there is no objective morality. And he offers Pascal's wager this kind of uh, insistence that, hey, you, it makes more sense to live as though there's a God than to live, it, live as though there's not. He offers a great variation on that that I, would, I think is very much worth reading. You also mentioned uh, earlier a couple times uh, Peter Kreef's book, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, that he co-wrote with uh, Father, Father Ronald Tasselli. Right. Um, I found that one of the, the best just general Christ- handbooks of Christian apologetics, exactly what its title is. Just some uh, a very easy-to-understand, straightforward exactly. explanation of, uh, I think there's like 20 proofs for God's existence yep. that they offer, yep. uh, as well as things of Jesus' divinity and so on. But just in terms of, again, a general Christian apologetics 
for the average uh, lay Catholic, I don't think you can do too much better uh, than that particular book. It, it is excellent because it's very accessible for people who don't have much of a theological or philosophical background. It's it's very readable, as is most of what uh, Peter Kraft writes, and he he does bring it together with Father Ticelli. Brings it together very nicely in that book, which is is published by uh, InterVarsity Press, a, a very good Protestant publishing house. Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd highly recommend that. And then Peter Kraft has some other books on addressing moral relativism and so forth uh, from Ignatius Press. Um, I, he's been doing some of the best work in terms of popular level from a, from a Catholic perspective. There's some really excellent uh, evangelical apologists. I mentioned William Lane Craig before, uh, J.P. Moreland, um, a number of others who've written some either popular level or kind of slightly more academic works. Mm-hmm very good in addressing uh, atheism, and certainly reading uh, some of the documents of Vatican II, and then reading really a lot of the work of Cardinal Ratzinger, there's so much in his writings about dealing with disbelief and skepticism and atheism. Especially considering, you know, coming from a, 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 obviously a European perspective, where I think that's even more of an issue than it is in our right. country. In fact, his, his masterpiece, what is considered to be kind of his masterwork, um, Introduction to Christianity, one of the most poorly named books. As I tell people, yeah, it's an introduction to Christianity if you're completely versed in continental philosophy. Yeah. Um, it is a very daunting work, but it's also a uh, very uh, important work in which he basically att- attempts, so I think very successfully, to go through the Apostles' Creed, doing it with a readership in mind who are non-believers who don't really know much about the Christian faith and arguing for the the reality of the truthfulness of the Christian claims. Um, so that's a more advanced work, but certainly wor- uh, worth checking out as well. Mm-hmm. Carl, thanks for your time today. Uh, is there anything else that you want to share with your audience before we conclude? Well, uh, I would you know shamelessly point out that we have a number of articles on IgnatiusInsight.com, which I edit, uh, addressing atheism, skepticism, other other beliefs. We have articles on a lot of contemporary uh, issues and so forth. If people want to check that out, and uh, of course, I work for Ignatius Press, so I'd happily push <laughs> people towards reading more Ignatius Press books. Uh, many of them addressing these uh, these issues as well. And I would just emphasize that I. We're going to be, in our lifetime, we're going to be dealing more and more with the fallout of atheistic ideas, and it's something that I think all Catholics need to at least have some familiarity with uh, and to really be knowledgeable about some of the basic contentions of atheists and how to answer some of, the, some of their, even kind of the pop atheist ideas that, that uh, they throw out there. Catholic writer and speaker Carl Olson, thanks for your time today, Carl. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Prayer Room Companion and this interview with Carl Wilson. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to contact me at cbergwald at sfcatholic.org. C-B-U-R-G-W-A-L-D at sfcatholic.org. Thank you and God bless you.